This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, where we are keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host and one of my favorite guests today. But first, my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Kurt, great to see you. Great to chat with you. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Chris. You hit the nail on the head. One of the things that really makes this podcast work is that we have a ton of good guests. And we've been fortunate to have a few repeat guests along the way. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Hester Purse has come on twice. Jane Norberg has come on twice. My colleague, Sarah Heaton-Concannon, has come on twice. But there is one guest that stands head and shoulders above them all. And it's our friend George Wilson from PLI. This is lucky number seven for George. He has been on episode 7, 19, 32, 45, 60, 73, and now episode 91. And I am not the accountant, but I think that's seven. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds right, but I'll need to see the supporting documentation before I can confirm that, Kurt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So let me just tee up the episode quickly for our listeners. Those of you who have been tuning in for a while will know that we here at Insecurities are supported by and proud to work with Practicing Law Institute, PLI. And you will also be familiar with PLI's SEC Institute or SECI, which was founded in 1983 with a mission to provide the most up-to-date SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting education through innovative workshops and programs. Among the educational materials offered by SECI are its quarterly newsletters, which discuss current SEC focus areas, new rules, rulemaking proposals, and the like. As I mentioned, we're joined by our good friend George this morning, who's going to walk us through some of the hot topics in the most recent SECI quarterly newsletter, including some changes in leadership at the SEC, accounting for crypto, and some new compliance and disclosure interpretations, which I'm sure you guys will call CNDIs, but you know, we'll save the acronyms. I call them candies. 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 I love it. All right. So some new candies regarding non-GAAP measures and executive compensation clawbacks. So with that, before we jump in, Chris, just remind our listeners who George is and then we'll get going. Yeah, we could spend the, you know, the whole episode talking about George's career and his background, but uh, you can go back and listen on episodes, what, 7, 19, 32, 45, you know the list. Uh, George <laughs> obviously is the director of the SEC Institute at PLI, which provides that up-to-date SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting education. At his heart, George is by far focused on teaching. He was an accounting professor at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, before joining PLI, and continues to run all of, I'll say, George, all of the best PLI programs, you know, related to all of our favorite topics here on the Insecurities Podcast, as well as developing the Advanced Accounting and Reporting for SEC Professionals Workshop and focused on, you know, kind of some of those technical issues like accounting for derivative and hedging instruments and activities and our favorite SOX 404 ICFR audit. So George is by far probably our wonkiest guest, Kurt, but he also <laughs> continues to be fresh as new things happen. Yeah. George, thanks for coming back and joining us. Oh, thank you both very much. It is always a privilege to be here with you guys and a delight. 
And yes, let's see how deeply we can get into the weeds today with some of these reporting <laughs> topics. You got you, it. You know that I am about reporting. And so let's see where we can go with all of this. Yeah, I think we're going to get in the weeds pretty fast, but we wanted to stay zoomed out at least at the beginning before I, I take a back seat and let you and Chris really <laughs> dig in. So I thought what we would kick off the episode with today is just talking about some of those changes in leadership at the SEC. I know they're highlighted in the quarterly newsletter, but just quickly, you know, in January, so just a couple months ago now, the commission announced a couple noteworthy changes in senior leadership positions. The SEC now has a new director of the Division of Corporate Finance and a new, or at least no longer acting, chief accountant. But uh, George, why don't you get us up to speed on those changes? Both very significant changes, I would say, particularly the chief accountant change. But it's probably as much title. I think the direction will continue. But anyway, with respect to the Division of Corporation Finance, the change in leadership to Eric Girding, I think, is going to be kind of continuing the same process. He is an academic. He worked in practice. He actually, though, was a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. So he brings that academic perspective that his predecessor had and that the chair has right now also. So there's a very theoretical bent to things. I think that the rulemaking process will continue kind of steady state from where it was before. I don't think there'll be any significant shifts. Those are, you know, larger policy situations and larger policy decisions. But I have to say, I'm sort of like waiting with bated breath <laughs> to see what happens with the cybersecurity rule proposal, the share buyback rule proposal, the disclosures there, and then of course the four billion pound elephant sitting off everywhere in the room, the climate related disclosures proposals. And I have to say, you know, having subscribed to the email updates from the SEC, Every day or two, they send another, here's a change to our upcoming events list. And I just grab that and go look to see if they've scheduled a meeting to talk about any of those rules and finalize them. But here we are, mid-April, almost tax day, and none of those have mm -hmm. bubbled up onto the agenda. So I think that will be a big focus, and we'll see movement with those. I think it's also interesting to ask what will be the impact on the review process. We've seen an uptick in the number of comment letters and, and a little bit more variety in some of the areas being addressed in comment letters. So I think that will also continue. We'll start to see more comment letters come out and we'll see those address proxy disclosures, I think, more frequently, and particularly now as we see the pay versus performance disclosures. Those are going to be in this year's proxy. I think we'll see comments about those. Frequently, the staff will give that like a year to sort of settle in before they start to write comments, but I think we'll see clarifying comments for those. And I think we'll also see, and in fact, one of the large CPA firms says that they've, in their measurement, observed an uptick in the number of climate-related comments. You know, that first round of 30-some comment letters that went out to large companies was followed with a second, and I think we'll see more of those to smaller and medium-sized companies. Mm. So I think that's where Mr. Girding will take the division. I think it'll be a continuation of where we were. 
Interesting. George, I know you want to talk a little bit about the chief accountant, but before you do that, an unscripted question for you here. Sure. I mean, I love you, that. You, you noted, and I think it's an important note that, uh, you know, Mr. Girding has an academic background. Renee Jones before him did as yes. well. Of course, we've got William Bird Thistle in the building who has an academic background. There are a number of academics who are starting to fill fairly senior positions at the SEC. I wonder it, I mean, and you usually have takes on these things, so that's why I'm asking you, but what do you think that means for the SEC from maybe a rulemaking perspective or directionally? Is there anything we can glean from the number of academics who are making their way into the building? I think rulemaking will have more of a theoretical versus practical bent. And when you read academic papers that talk about securities regulation, they frequently have a different perspective than the people who are kind of frontline practicing accountants mm -hmm. and practicing attorneys. And I think we'll start to see some of those things inform the rulemaking process. I'm trying to think of a good example. In, in, in the climate-related proposal, the part of that proposal that is about governance and risk would shine a fair amount of light into the internal policies and the sort of approach to managing climate risk that individual companies take. Mm -hmm. Some of that could have fairly significant competitive ramifications. If you're in an industry and you're going to manage climate risk more aggressively than someone else in that industry, Pragmatic people might say, let's avoid disclosures that could have that kind of competitive impact. But a theoretical perspective might say those disclosures need to be in the hands of investors. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I know you and Chris think more about the rulemakings that hint at disclosure obligations. That's not always where what? my head goes. But, so you know, there, I, so where I think did your head go? Where did well, your head go? I mean, I think that some of the, the market structure rulemaking proposals oh. that have come out in the last you know several months would fall in the bucket that you're describing, George, which is theoretically, maybe philosophically. Philosophical, great word. Yeah. You know, we yeah. understand the problem that the commission has identified and, and they're trying to get out. Now, some will say there's no problem, right? There, It's a rulemaking in search of a problem. But, you know, even I was listening to the I'm a podcast this morning and they were saying, look, we understand that there may be a place in the markets for some kind of auctions, right? That there may be a certain band of securities, certain types of securities where that makes sense. But to sort of do it as broadly as the commission is contemplating probably doesn't make sense for retail investors, for the firms that have to actually implement systems and rules to effectuate that type of a process. So I think it's a similar thing. So again, not in the disclosure framework, but you know, similar kind of when we're kind of getting down to brass tacks, is it going to work? That's perfect. You know, one of the things that listening to all of your episodes has done for me is help me expand my understanding of areas like market structure, of areas like regulation of market participants. Oh my gosh, when you've talked with the FINRA people, that has been absolutely yeah. eye-opening and That's delightful a good ones. for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually did a workshop at FINRA down in the Wall Street area several years ago, but it was about reporting mm -hmm. so that they could understand what's supposed to be in a 10K more effectively. But those episodes, I agree completely. That's a place where you think about theory versus what's really practical. What's just popped into my mind is the keeping track of things like text messages, 
and <laughs> being able to reproduce those and put those in a safe, secure, encrypted device. Wow, the volume of data that's involved is mind-boggling. Yeah. So how do you blend theory and practice together? It's pretty easy to go over to the here's how it should be perspective. And, you know, fundamentally, if you go back when the authors of the 33 Act originally put that together, their first cut was a more or less sort of merit-based kind of approach. And President Roosevelt said, no, we're not going to do merit-based regulation. Mm -hmm. So they went back and wrote this very elegant, but also marvelously pragmatic approach to regulating the securities market that was grounded in information investors might need, but was very thoughtful and worked together with how the process worked. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the point about 33 Act and some of the subsequent acts or rulemaking are really designed at, you know, what do people need to know? What do investors need to know? Which feels to me like a great segue for you to tell us what you were going to tell us before, which is about who is our new chief accountant (laughs) over at the SEC. Did we get overly wonky on that one? (laughs) No such thing. Not on this podcast, George. (laughs) All right. So that's that's the other sort of major personnel change is Paul Muttner, who had been in the chief accountant's role as acting chief accountant for many months, over a year, actually our body year. It was named the chief accountant. And that is an, I think, affirmation of the agenda he has set as the chief accountant. If you go back and look at the statements that he's issued, you can see him, first of all, working in the accounting standards setting realm, one of the three main areas that OCA deals with. He, when the FASB was doing their agenda consultation project, he issued a statement talking about, let's make this pragmatic and focus on the needs of investors. And the FASB had been working on projects like, should we be amortizing goodwill? A lot of press, all kinds of fun stuff about that. In Mr. Muntner's statement, it was, Munter's statement, it was actually, eh, is that really a necessary change? Is that gonna make things better for investors? And lo and behold, that project disappeared from the agenda. Mm -hmm. He's talked about, let's speed the process up. And we're going to talk in a little bit about the FASB's project for digital assets. And it's almost startling to me how quickly that project has moved to the exposure draft stage. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And I think his lobbying, the accounting standard setting process, has had an impact that is focused on investors and the needs of investors in their information gathering process from the financial statements. In the audit world, he's also issued several statements kind of saying to auditors, let's keep things on the straight and narrow here. Mm -hmm. One of my, I think, startling moments in the last six months was reading his a statement about the auditor's responsibility for the detection of fraud. And Chris, I don't know how you felt about that as an auditor reading <laughs> that statement, but it was pretty much, you know, guys, take this seriously. Yeah, we've briefly touched on it on episodes in the past, and mm-hmm. to remind those listeners who maybe zone out during discussions of audit and accounting, looking at you, Kurt. That's, that doesn't <laughs> <laughs> The basic premise of those comments was that the fact that auditors are signing clean opinions, and yet we're still having instances of financial fraud occur, 
on its face, right, proves that the audit is not accomplishing what is expected. And there has been, you know, Mr. Munner has his side of that argument and audit firms for years have felt strongly about their position in, in their role of performing a financial statement audit versus fraud detection. So, uh, George, that heart-stopping moment has continued to keep hearts beating <laughs> quickly, maybe, in the six months since. But I think, too, one of the important things to talk about uh, Chief Accountant Muntner is that although his most recent, already prior to joining the commission, was, again, as an academic, he had a long and successful career as a practitioner with, with one of the big, uh, big accounting and audit firms mm -hmm. as well. So I think we're setting up, George and Kurt, maybe the next time we get together and chat, you will both be grumbling about the theoretical application of some of these new rules and discussions that have come from our increasingly <laughs> academic SEC. But uh, Chief Accountant Muntner may, may you know, take a left turn there and be more, more practical, as we've discussed. He certainly has been down to earth in a lot of the things that he's done, just his impact on the FASB, his impact on the accounting profession. And he sends a very, I want to say, stern message on occasion. You know, his reminders to auditors about you know, their responsibilities when they're the lead auditor in an engagement involving other auditors. The clarity of communication there can be very complex. You know, you think you're getting an auditor from, for example, from my or an audit, excuse me, from my alma mater, KPMG. But if you've got international operations, there's actually a separate audit firm legally out there, KPMG in England or KPMG in France. And that's your lead auditor using another auditor. That's not always made clear to audit committees. So clarifying those responsibilities and kind of saying toe the line. There have been some pretty significant enforcement cases where, for example, at one audit firm, individuals were actually, let's just use a harsh word, cheating ethics exams to get ethics credit and do ethics qualifications. And those kinds of things are scarier than heck. And he's been very forthright to just put that out into a statement and say, we need to know about this. So those are things that I actually would say are designed to have a positive impact on the audit profession. And I mean, I know auditors do their best to be reasonable and make sure the financial statements are reasonable and in accordance with GAAP. But every once in a mm -hmm. while, something breaks or every mm -hmm. once in a while, there's a bad apple. And we've got to address that. And I think that's what he's focused on. And we're on. hopeful to be able to maybe even have the chief accountant on the podcast over our upcoming accounting summer school round two, George, this summer. So <laughs> looking for some updated programming on that, as well as, you know, the wonkiest of wonky topics where, again, Kurt gets a summer vacation and we focus on accounting. <laughs> he would be an incredible guest. He is very enjoyable to visit mm -hmm. with. Excellent. One of the topics that you hinted at, George, I want to jump into it a little bit, but I called it accounting for crypto up top. But you mentioned that this is something that the FAS is looking into and maybe thinking about putting out some guidance. I feel like this is really timely timely because, you know, yesterday I was scrolling through Twitter, as I do sometimes, and saw my friend Francine McKenna was pointing out that several former senior executives at a couple of different crypto platforms that will remain nameless have said publicly that it, they're just on audit. Both of them mm -hmm. at different times said that, you know, sort of referring to the things that, that they hold or pur purport to hold. So, I mean, I feel like with that segue, George, how are we going to get this right? <laughs> I think I will decline to answer citing my rights under the 
fourth provision of the AIC. That's a really great question, and I think we're all going to be discovering an answer to that question as we move well, along. Maybe a better question then is tell us what the FASB's up to. You don't yeah, have to yeah. answer that. Well, maybe don't right. solve it, but just when talk you about talk it. Crypto assets. There are two big issues. One is how shall we account for those assets, and the other is how do we audit those assets. And I think the audit question is actually far more complex. But you're right, exactly right, Kurt. The FASB has moved forward, I would say, with reasonable speed in the standard setting continuum to actually, it was in March, late March, issue an exposure draft of a standard about accounting for, as they define them, crypto assets. So as the board sometimes does, they try, they have a bigger project on their research agenda and they picked a narrow part of it to get a standard out to hopefully improve financial reporting near term. This was one of the issues that Paul Munter specifically mentioned in his statements. So you can kind of see the impact and the speed. And I suspect those two issues are linked together in some way, shape or form. But in any event, the board built a definition of crypto assets. And it's, it's somewhat restrictive. It's any asset that meets the definition that exists of an intangible asset, but it doesn't provide you with enforceable rights or any underlying obligations related to goods or services. If that were the case, we might be moving closer to that's a security. So they carefully moved that out of there. It has to be on a distributed ledger or a blockchain kind of thing. That has to be secured through cryptography. It's fungible and it's not something you created. I mean, that's a pretty limiting definition, but it'll still gather a lot of crypto assets. And basically what they said, if you got something like that, you should account for it at fair value. Now, Chris, I've been waiting all episode to ask, what did you think about the way that people shoehorned crypto assets before this exposure draft into the indefinite lived and tangible model? Did that make any sense at all to you? I mean, right, it kind of sits in the tenets of that kind of crypto philosophy, right? That's going to be our word of the day and that these things will go on forever and be hard to value or interesting with to, to value over that time period. I, you know, the, when this came out, the first thing I looked at was how are we defining this, right? What are the ways, and, and Kurt, you and I have talked about this, you know, probably 50 out of the almost 100 episodes we've done about the definitions of digital assets, digital asset securities, crypto assets here. And although these Venn diagrams don't overlap with what we talk about from a securities law perspective, I'm you know, relatively satisfied with the degree of specificity around this definition, right? And that we are putting a stake in the ground. We know it's not going to be a catch-all. Obviously, there'll be exceptions or there'll be things that are included that shouldn't be and vice versa. But we've got some pretty good ideas here that our understanding of the crypto world, right, the practicality of it, as well as, hey, we've got to talk about the way to value these things as they go forward. So I really enjoy, you know, this, right, as any accountant would, right? I like the rules, even though we're always principles-based here. You know, seeing the rules here to be able to kind of point to yes or no gives companies, right, and we've talked about this a lot too in the past, gives companies the opportunity to do their best to follow the guidance. Now, I know this isn't final yet, George, right? We're just kind of in that discussion phase here. The, I think the comment period goes through 
June 6th. Okay. It's early June yeah. and the comment period expires. And so, right, in terms of that process, this is merely the FASB putting out its thoughts, you know, about where to go next and expecting the industry and the market to, to comment on that. So I'm hopeful, right, again, as we put stakes in the ground, we're able to better have a discussion around it than some of the more esoteric things that might come up or the arguments about being on one end of the spectrum or the other. You know, I'm excited to see some of the comments come in and where the discussion leads in the late summer. It will be interesting, but I'll bet that we end up carrying them at fair value, gains, unrealized gains or losses going through net income. Mm -hmm. I think that's a little more realistic, but there should be disclosures and they will require separate presentation from other intangibles. So it'll be, but I agree, it'll be interesting to see where the comments come. And the FASB always does respond to the comments. So the final standard will likely look different. Mm -hmm. Auditing these things, wow. All I want to say about that is <laughs> nice not to be an auditor right now. <laughs> How do you audit stuff on the blockchain? You know, you can't go put a tick mark on that part of the hard drive. That presents some really unique challenges. And I'm hoping that the auditing profession steps up and talks about that. Because right now, I think that is a very complex issue. It's There was a very interesting enforcement case against an audit firm that was auditing a crypto company. It was a crypto exchange and crypto trader, and the company ended up restating. The audit firm ended up with some real complex and harsh consequences. And, and there wasn't really any guidance to go back to, and unfortunately, they did not do their homework. It's going to continue to be kind of developing area, right, from the audit perspective. And as each of these... Yeah individual solutions, if you will, blockchain or distributed ledger solutions are going to require their own consideration. You know, the, I liken it to like cash, right? Everybody knows how to audit cash. But if each type of mm -hmm. cash or holding of cash or bank of record is different, you know, audit procedures and thoughts about that are probably going to have to change with that as well. So this is, as Kurt, you and I started this podcast, what, two and a half almost years ago. Crypto has been top of mind. It'll probably continue to be for the next two and a half, <laughs> if not, to, not further into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Kurt, any considerations, uh, you know, in your review of kind of the accounting rules of where that might fall out from the legal side, or are we a little bit too deep in the weeds before we can start to fight about appropriate disclosures <laughs> and treatments? I mean, it's a little bit deep in the weeds, and we have to see what the final rule looks like. I always think it's interesting to see how things are defined from an accounting perspective, because it's separate than the legal question, yeah. right? I mean, on some level, you don't care if it's a security or not, yep. right? Yeah. It could be inventory, <laughs> equipment, real estate, right? Yep. The company reporting entity owns something and you got to figure out how to account for it. But sometimes I think one thing kind of drives another, yeah. right? And so if we can sort of agree on what these things are from an accounting perspective, maybe that will inform the view of rulemakers about how we should think about them, you know, from a legal standpoint in terms mm -hmm. of when do these start to look more like a security? I don't know. We'll have to see. But it's interesting to see, you know, like you said, Chris, there is a Venn diagram there. Yeah. And just sort of watching to see where they overlap is interesting. Well, uh, somebody will some point have a master definition or a master phrase that involves the words cryptos, assets, securities, you know, probably a how you'll get thrown in there, right? And we'll just have this, you know, 48 <laughs> word definition that describes the industry. So it'll be interesting to get there. Uh, speaking of the weeds, George, two of the other items we want to talk about today kind of fall in this vein of candies. And candies are such, it's my new favorite word. I'm going to say it 14 more times on this podcast. Uh, candies are an interesting guidance uh, mechanism 
for the Securities and Exchange Commission when it comes to some of the more specific or, God forbid, wonky topics that we have here. So if you could, George, illuminate us a little bit on what candies are, maybe where they fall in what we like to call the hierarchy of GAAP or the hierarchy of reporting requirements or legal interpretations. Uh, and then you and I could talk about non-GAAP and clawback uh, candies that have come about here in the past few months. Well, <clears throat> compliance and disclosure interpretation. C-A-D-I. So yep, you got it. But if you spell out the word and, you do get the There we go. <laughs> Near and dear to my heart. These actually have a long history. They go back even before the internet when people would call the SEC with questions and the SEC would answer questions over the phone. So they built a whole bunch of what they call telephone interpretations. And the volume of telephone interpretations grew and grew. Generally, they that were asked frequently enough that they decided to kind of memorialize them in writing. So the telephone interpretations grew in volume. And as we moved into the online world, they decided to make them more publicly available through the SEC's website and renamed them compliance and disclosure interpretations, because that sounds fancy. Mm -hmm. And if you use telephone, you would actually sound pretty outdated. Pretty, you get your rotary phone in the corner, right, before you call the SEC. Yeah, that's when they actually started back, when you could actually put your finger <laughs> on the rotary dial on your phone. <laughs> but in any event, there are gazillions of them, and they're generally issued by the Corp Fin Council Office and provide guidance of the staff. So they are not official positions of the commission. Mm -hmm. Their staff guidance. And you need to remember, you, you need to do what the staff says you should do. But if you think that it really doesn't fit, you can always kind of appeal that. And Jay Clayton, the former chair, actually in a statement said, remember, staff positions are positions of the staff. Official rules only come from the commission. But you still do what they say. And sometimes they're super helpful. For example, one of my favorite CNDIs to talk about is actually related to the SOX 404 audit. If you have an acquisition that happens near the end of your fiscal year, and you're a large accelerated filer and you've purchased a large company, but that company has never had an internal control over financial reporting audit, even though you bought them towards the end of the year, do you have to include that acquired company in your current year audit of internal control over financial reporting? Now, it could be a mammoth task yeah, to, to, to accomplish in 30 days, right? If you're an accelerated filer. <laughs> crazy. So you would think somewhere there would be some kind of an official rule yeah. that says, no, you can wait. It's not. It's actually in a compliance and disclosure interpretation. Way towards the bottom of the list on the SEC's webpage, there are Sarbanes-Oxley CNDIs, and that's where you can find that interpretation. Mm -hmm. So the, you find them on the CorpFin part of the SEC's website. And anytime you've got kind of a sundry reporting question, you're scratching your head, where should this go in the 10K? Go look and see if there's a CNDI that addresses it. One of my second favorites is the CNDI that says, if you have a change in auditor, you can't report that in item 9B or item 5, or item 9B of a 10K or item 5, part 2, item 5 of a 10Q. That must be reported on a 4.01 8K. Mm -hmm. Those are so important that you can't hide it somewhere yeah. else. You've got to file the 8K. That's good. So that's the kind of stuff you'll find there.
And I, I and these new CNDIs. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Yeah, to me, right? I think we and we even touched on this a little bit when we were talking about, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek with some of the, the philosophies, right, of different folks that joined the commission. This is such an interesting body of work in that it is mm-hmm. where guidance meets application. And it is a it kind of a some people might call it the Wild West, right? And that these are not official guidance, as you just described, but it's also super informative for anybody who's dealing with maybe a new issue. And we'll talk about a couple of of topics that are one relatively old, but with an update and one relatively new, it's helping to inform. And again, we're working to give practitioners out there a perspective without there being some holding to authoritative guidance or it's allowing the SEC to even maybe talk freer than they might, you know, in some of their more formal rulings to to help inform folks as they go. I love, and Kurt, I don't know if you've read through the caveats in the discussion of the CNDIs on the SEC's website, I think is my favorite league of all time in terms of, listen, guys, we just wrote this stuff. It came from all of you. None of it counts, but some of it's important. (laughs) <laughs> Take a read. It's good for you. So, uh, George, let's get into, you know, the two topics we want to talk about today is the update to non-GAAP measures, which we've talked about a bunch, both in accounting summer school and beyond here, and then kind of the new clawback rules. But let's start with non-GAAP. What new information came with the CNDIs that were updated recently? Well, one thing I want to do before we jump in is just review a couple of definitions. Well, I'm hoping these eventually make it into your acronym bingo Ooh. game. So first one is IBIT. Do you guys know what IBIT, E-B-I-T stands for? Is it no earnings before, before interest in taxes? Interest in taxes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not even close. One. That's the old one. That is now <laughs> earnings before irregularities and tampering. So keep that one in the back of your mind. And then the is there, are there that, any other acronyms with tampering? I mean, yeah. I, I think you made this up, George. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be an interesting then, thing to disclose your your tampering. Yeah. No, I just wanted to get a cheap joke. Got it. For, for talking about I've got another oh, one if you want to talk let's about hear it. that one. It's IBITDA, which is earnings before I tricked the dumb auditor. Wow. <laughs> and I got to remember, I'm a recovering auditor. I do go to a meeting every Tuesday. Hello. <laughs> George, sure, the t-shirts know. are lovely. Like I find them more those. amusing than crunch. Sure. No yeah. comment. Let's move on to our discussion <laughs> of that. In December, in December, the staff issued a whole bunch of new CNDIs that amended some others and added some areas related to the use of non-cap measures. And I would say as a general theme, these didn't really create new specific staff positions. Mm-hmm. What they really did was more or less regularize and write down in the CNDIs position the, the staff had been taking in the comment line yes. process. And I think they clarified things in many ways. One of them was, <clears throat> it's actually question 102.10. It's saying, you know, are there ways that you could present a non-GAAP measure and a GAAP measure that could be, you know, a, not following the equal or greater prominence guidance? Now, I actually think when SK item 10E says you must present the non-GAAP measure and the GAAP measure together and the GAAP measure must have equal or greater prominence than the non-GAAP measure, they should just take out the word equal. I mean, how do you put equal? One of them's got to come first. Yeah, more prominent, right? You can't be equal if you're more prominent. It has to be. So you always put the gap measure first, always put the gap measure first. And, you know, as a sidebar, this continues to be one of the highest comment frequency areas in the review process. And it is always absolutely startling to me how 
so many of the comments just go back to really basic read the guidance kind of issues. Mm -hmm. People put a non-gap measure in the headline of their earnings release and don't put the gap measure first. I mean, that's like a no-brainer. 101, There's yeah. no reason to get that comment, but you still see that comment all the time. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I used to get in arguments about with people in our workshops is why can't I put the non-gap measure first in my reconciliation? Theoretically, you should reconcile from the gap measure to the non-gap measure. And this CNDI actually finally says it. Mm -hmm. You must start with the gap measure. Just as simple as that. There are places where some of this stuff is far more subtle. One of the things that they addressed was individually tailored accounting principles. And you can't make a non-gap adjustment that essentially moves you from a gap measurement principle to a measurement principle that's not gap. And a great example of that is, I don't know if you guys bowl, but there's a company out there that actually came public called Bolero. And if you've ever been to one of their bowling centers, it's absolutely psychedelic. It's really cool. It's had parties for my grandkids there. And uh, they actually had a non-gap measure where they wanted to take gap rent expense, which is you know kind of pretty complex when you think mm -hmm. about our lease accounting today, and convert that to cash so you could see how much cash they actually pay for rent for their centers. Hmm. And the SEC said, hey, wait a second, rent expense needs to be recorded based on gap as promulgated in ASC 842, mm -hmm. if you're into that kind of stuff cash basis is a non-gap basis and they made them unwind their non-gap measure that tried to show here's just the cash we paid for rent. Hmm. That was a really interesting individually tailored accounting principle. And then one of one of my favorite CNDIs is basically saying sometimes you can go a little too far. And they <laughs> talk about that and there have been comments about that all the time. But my one of my favorite examples of that is several years ago, a clothing company decided, it, it was a fashion clothing company, the kind where you walk through malls. You guys, I haven't been in a mall in a long time, but they still have a minute. stores yeah. that clothes and stuff, I'm guessing. But in any event, this clothing company wanted to present a non-gap measure where they added back inventory markdowns. Now, if you're a fashion-based clothing company, you're going to have inventory markdowns all the time. Mm -hmm. And one of the CNDIs actually says, can a measure be misleading even if the adjustments are described in robust detail? Hmm. And the answer to that question is yes. Trying to convince people that a better measure of your ongoing core profitability for a clothing company to do that, say, well, you don't ignore those inventory markdowns because that's not a measure of our core profitability. When you have those every quarter, yeah. that is potentially misleading. I think that a handful of the CNDIs we see from the non-GAAP are really that kind of catch-all, right? It's you can't mm -hmm. disclose your way out of being misleading. You can't you know, label your way out of being misleading. And they talk a little bit, too, about changing periods, right? Is there a way that presentation could be misleading if it changes period over period? And the answer to that is, is still yes, right? There's opportunities, and this taken by the commission here in the CNDIs, to reinforce the idea that even if you follow the letter of the law, if you will, the spirit still needs to be intact as well. And George, that example that you just provided from the clothing company is that that spirit. 
If you're eliminating a recurring activity over and over again from a non-GAAP measure, you're not following the spirit of what a non-GAAP measure should represent or, God forbid, how it's presented as we go forward. So, no, I think that's great. And then the blog post that came out from the SECI definitely helps kind of catch a lot of those rules outside of the technical side and provide a little more context there. I couldn't help but cherry pick a couple of those to talk about because they're very subtle. They're it's, fun. And I'm sure as crypto uh, comes and goes on the podcast, so too have non-GAAP metrics. But we want to pivot now and talk about, I think something that's been pretty headline over the past couple months is the discussion of the clawback rules. Yeah. And again, an update to our candies as it relates to the specific clawback applications for executive compensation, for financial reporting, and a lot of the other issues that happen. So, George, talk to us about what you saw from this, the candies related to clawbacks. Well, the clawback rule came along pretty darn quickly. Mm -hmm. And it actually has, I'm going to say, a very indirect process to create the rules. Because, of course, the SEC cannot regulate corporate governance. They can make you disclose stuff, but they can't say, here's how your governance needs to work. But what they can do is go to the exchanges and say, if you want to have someone listed on your exchange, they have to have these governance provisions and make a rule that says that. So the way that the clawback rule works is it actually requires the national exchanges, principally the NASDAQ and the NYSE, to propose listing standards that require a clawback policy. Now, both the NYSE and the NASDAQ have proposed those standards. You can find them on the SEC's webpage as they repropose them. You can find them on the exchange webpages too. But the clawback policy essentially, in a pretty strict sense, says that if you have a financial statement restatement, and it doesn't matter whether it's a big R, material misstatement, or a little R, staff counting bulletin 108, a misstatement, you have to look at any incentive compensation that would have been different based on those restated numbers. And if you paid more than would have been paid based on the restated numbers, you need to claw that back. This applies essentially to officers in that plan. There's actually a three-year, if the person has left, a three-year window, you've got to go back and try to recover that compensation. And you also need to disclose your clawback policy. And then one of my favorite little nitpicky reporting things is they added two checkboxes to the cover page of the Form 10-K about clawback stuff. And those checkboxes are now on the cover page of the Form 10-K. And you kind of scratch your head, do I need to do that now? I mean, it's in the official cover page, so it should be on your cover page when you file your next 10-K. But there's a CNDI, one of the CNDIs clarifies that, yeah, it's on the form now because the official form changed when the rule became effective. But you don't have to answer the questions yet. Mm -hmm. They did the same thing with a box for XBRL. Yeah, I remember. Where yeah. The box was there and nobody knew what to do with it. And everybody, free, everybody freaks out with stuff. Of like course. That. And the answer to that question is, it just doesn't matter. So relax. It's just a box. But in any event, that's one of the CNDIs. I think this is going to be fascinating to watch play out. I think you guys will be on the front line for some of these situations. But what will happen is 
after the exchanges officially enact those provisions, companies, those listing standards, companies will need to adopt a clawback policy. And I think there are a number of governance issues you need to think about there. You know, com companies need to talk to the officers who will be covered by that clawback policy and make sure they're aware of that. That probably needs to become part of employment agreements going forward. That's more of a legal thing, Kurt, and I'll leave the final analysis there to you. But I think those kinds of steps to make sure everybody's aware of it, that people know that if they leave the company, there's a three-year window where you may have to come back and clawback compensation from them. And interestingly, there are provisions that say if it would be prohibitively costly to get the clawback comp you know, compensation subject to clawback, you don't have to do that. But there are a wealth of disclosures you have to make about these issues, in addition to disclosing your clawback policy. So the CNDIs clarify a little bit about who's covered, the checkbox thing, which is deep into the minutia of reporting. I actually couldn't resist and did a blog post about the checkbox. That's too. right. So, so that's kind of the clawback fun for now. It depends on when the exchanges finish their and formally mm -hmm. enact their listing standards as to when you will have to have your policy in place. But I would say stay tuned for that. The other thing I just mentioned here is many companies who proactively work to establish good governance have policies that require this kind of clawback now. But those policies will probably require adjustment based on the things mm -hmm. that end up in those final listing standards. There's a lot of great info kind of on the clawback rule itself, right? What the dictation is on that. You know, George did a great job summarizing mm -hmm. that. But if you're looking for more info, you know, feel free to check out. I know RSM has done some work in this area as well as other firms. And I'm sure there's some legal yeah. legal analysis out there as well. Kurt, anything you want to add on clawbacks yeah. besides the unscrupulous <laughs> CFO buying his vacation home with earnings earned on a restated set of financials? No, I think George hit the nail on the head. They're obviously will be a ripple effect in terms of what's required from a government standpoint. How are you going to create your policies internally? What are they going to say? How are you going to educate your senior executives about them? How are you going to monitor for mm -hmm. these kinds of things, right? But you know that it's yet to be seen how those things are going to play out, what shape it's going to take. One note on the candies, though, I will say, because when we were preparing for this episode, uh, I wanted to just kind of see where they all are, right? Because it's not something I typically spend a lot of time looking at. It would be more like I'm in a case and someone on like the accounting team would say to me, well, we did it this way because of CNDI like 427 or, you know, whatever. I'm like, okay, well, can you send it to me, right? But if you actually go on the SEC's website, and they don't always do this really well, listeners, I'm surprised. <laughs> Spoiler but alert. This page is actually really helpful. If you go to the Compliance and Disclosure Interpretations page, they've got it broken out by uh, by act in terms of the securities laws they've got you know subtopics beneath there there's you know the regulations you can hit, you know click a button and it'll show you all the topics under reg fd reg sk reg st so i actually think it's really helpful and fun fact george on the cndi page it does say that you can still call and there's a link where you can find the phone number if you want to ask a question of a live person. <laughs> That's beautiful. I like it. Maybe. Hey, guys, can I, can I toss one last kind of hot topic into the discussion here? Keeping it warm. Yeah. And that would be the changes to Rule 10b-5-1 plans. Now, I know that the details of the changes to the plan 
structure and such are beyond what we want to talk about today. You know, you've got the cooling off period. You can't have multiple plans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those changes are all in place. But for companies in the reporting process, starting for periods that begin after April 1, so for a second quarter Q, if you're a calendar year company, mm-hmm. you have to make disclosures about your officer's use of 10B5-1 plans. And if you aren't getting up to speed with that kind of stuff, I mean, just making sure that you know which officers have which plans, Yeah, that information is all going to have to be disclosed. And in your next K, you're going to have to include as an exhibit, I think it's just the K, your insider trading policy. So there's changes there that I just wanted to highlight because, again, those happened very quickly towards the end of last mm-hmm. year. And they kind of sneak up on people. And particularly the disclosures about officers and directors' use of plans. It's interesting. You don't have to disclose company plans, but officer and director plans have to be disclosed. It's a whole other ball of wax. I wanted to mention that briefly. And that's probably a little more legal, but it does have a disclosure implication. Well, it's interesting, George. I know some companies have been scrambling around trying to figure out what they need to disclose and when, actually, because it's a little bit less than clear in terms of, you know, in which reporting period you need to make those disclosures this year. So, what you know, just remind folks who are listening, maybe they've been wondering this, but what's the timeline or what's the timetable? Well, it, based on a reasonably conservative reading of the rule, <laughs> caveats in your, away in your quarterly report, in your quarterly report for a period that begins April 1st or after, you need to start making disclosures about those plans. And it actually comes from new SK item 408, which in the 10Q is referred to, I think, in part two, item five. Not to get too deeply into the weeds, <laughs> but that would be a thing to check. That would be a thing to yeah. check. And make sure you check that with counsel. I think that's good advice. The timing for disclosure of your insider trading plan in the 10K, that's a little murky in the rule. I was hoping we would have a compliance and disclosure interpretation about but ah, well. Maybe next quarter, Maybe we'll- George. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah Maybe it. we'll see it. I don't think anyone thought it was supposed to be in the most recent K if you were on a year. Yeah. But if your calendar year ends after April 1, I think there's a question, you know, if you end on June 30, does it need to be in your K for the year end June 30? And I think that is not super clear. That is not clear at all. That is not clear at all. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe there's a maybe there's something new in the candy dish going. The forward. candy dish. It's especially <laughs> timely with these spring <laughs> spring candy related holidays, Kurt. You know, George, thank you for walking through a lot of the hot topics that that have come through the SEC Institute's quarterly newsletter. Want to give you a chance to any great programs coming up from PLI that you know our listeners should be ahead of or at least looking to on the website in the coming weeks and months. Well, you know, our curriculum has basically three paths. We do our mid-year and year-end updates, and we do one in September for small and mid-sized companies. So in June, we're going to have our Mm two-day conferences in San Francisco and New York. You can come live. You can do it on the webcast, but that's the update vehicle, kind of the latest stuff. And then we're actually doing our, what we call essentials workshops, which are modular, virtual, completely virtual half-day programs. <clears throat> and we'll be doing all of those in May. So if you're looking for a tune-up there. And then our regular two-day intense 
you get a free lunch out of it workshops. Those are going on all through the year. So yeah, anybody has questions, you can always reach out to us about what's the best path in there. Our curriculum is reasonably complex because we've got <laughs> these multiple entry points. Mm -hmm. So we thanks for the opportunity to explain that. And I have one last question. <laughs> what are you guys going to do to celebrate the 100th? episode so i'm hoping it's going to be something super special and i'm willing to wait but oh my gosh the things that you guys have done here are absolutely amazing i think we're finally going to cash all those royalty checks from all the advertising <laughs> kurt i don't know if you've been doing that or not but it doesn't get you out of the tax yeah. no, i don't need them. an accountant to tell you what they're it's, worth <laughs> <laughs> fair value adjustments are not needed there you know george we're working on a couple of things right we want to have a great you know nine more episodes to get us over the line to 100 we've got some special programming reaching at that time and we're even looking at maybe having a gasp in-person event at some point in the fall to celebrate with a lot of our guests and supporters of the podcast so we'll be be hoping to uh, you know push out some ideas around that uh, as well as you know if those out there listening you know want to celebrate in a certain way with us we'd encourage them to reach out All right. stay and tuned then, as they say and i would also just mention that you need to remember that while we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the sarbanes oxley act last year this year we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the FASB. <sighs> Wow. What a birthday. So maybe we can like you can combine those celebrations. It's just a thought. <laughs> well, Chris loves to tell me that our episode celebrating the 20th anniversary of Sox remains one of our, what is it, top three? Definitely top five. Yeah, most listened most to Most popular episodes, episodes mm -hmm. of all time. So maybe if we roll out something for Fazby Turns 50, man, that could there. just be the capstone for our sophomore year of summer accounting <laughs> school. <laughs> God, we're going to have to graduate at some point, right? That's going to be nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Well, George, thanks so much again for joining us. We always appreciate it. You know, best of luck in the coming weeks and months with a lot of the programming coming up. And we look forward to chatting with you again, you know, come the end of summer, early fall. Thank you both very much. Always a treat. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, George Wilson of Practicing Law Institute. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. 
please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.